This morning our scripture reading is taken from the book of Hebrews. And as a kid, there were a couple passages from Hebrews that I, I had to learn because of the church that I was part of. And so as an adult, it's sometimes strange to meet a familiar verse in an unfamiliar place. And there are a couple verses here that I think maybe you'll have heard before as well. And I want to read the larger context because the only way we know what it means is by looking at all of it. So we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. And if you have a Bible or a phone, I'd encourage you to follow along with me as I read. Hebrews 4, verse 1 says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love that passage because it is honest about the fear of not being right with God. But just when your fear rises up and you think, I'm going to stand before God someday, and what if I have failed to enter this rest? What if I come under God's judgment? Just when it leads you there, it says, you have a great high priest. You're not holding fast to your own obedience. You're holding fast 
to the work of Christ Jesus and what Jesus has done for you. And from that place of security and forgiveness with the blood of Christ covering your sins, from that place, then in joy, you learn to obey what God calls you to do and you learn the joy of obedience. Hebrews is precious because it holds Jesus so high. It makes rest possible because you know what he has done for you already. This morning, we are going to continue our our message in Luke. And I I want to begin this message today with some bad news and some good news. And as I was preparing, I thought briefly, I said, man, I might say, what do you want first? And ask what you would like to hear first. But then I realized that that would ruin everything. So I'm just going to give you the bad news first. The bad news is Satan is real in your life. You have an enemy who hates you. And and in case you feel like you're super important because Satan hates you, the reason Satan hates you is you are made in the image of God. And Satan hates God. If you've ever ever had a romantic relationship that goes wrong what's the first thing you do after the breakup take the pictures out throw them in the trash you burn them you deface the image because you do not like the person that the image reminds you of you are made in the image of God and Satan hates you because of it you have an enemy who is real some of us and I include myself in this get in the habit of acting as if that's not true. We forget that we are in a real spiritual war that is constantly waging all around us. Some of you aren't just forgetful. Some of you may be somewhat embarrassed to talk about the existence of the devil. You may not even think he's real. Because it seems sort of superstitious might seem that people want to blame their own faults on someone else, so they just bring them up and say, you know, the devil made me do it. That's, number one, not true. The devil can't make you do anything. But it's also not true because he is real. The Bible says that he prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Jesus describes Satan as being real. We're going to see in our text today how Jesus is tempted by the devil. But when he talks to Peter, this is later on in the book of Luke, we'll get here in in, in a few weeks. Jesus tells Peter, Satan desires to sift you like wheat. And he treats that threat as real. He's saying he wants to destroy you. He wants you to be blown away by the wind. He wants you to be destroyed. Jesus takes that threat seriously and he prays for Peter Because the the demonic and satanic opposition to Peter was real. The Bible shows Satan deceiving people through lying spirits so that they make foolish decisions to disobey God. He does this all throughout the Bible. He did it to Eve in the Garden of Eden. He asked her, he said, did God really say? And then he encouraged her to consider things that were not true. And ultimately led her to disobey God. He did it to ancient kings in Israel. And I was reading this morning in 1 Chronicles. How David was tempted by Satan. 
And as a result, and David is held up as a godly king. He's not perfect, but he's described as a man after God's own heart. And Satan leads him into temptation and leads him to a place where he disobeys God and brings judgment on the entire kingdom. If Satan can do that to King David, he can do it to you. Scripture says, not only does he do this to ancient kings and people in the Bible and the Old Testament, it says... The God of this world, and by that term it means Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The the biblical view is that Jesus is so attractive, if you saw him clearly, you'd follow him. But Satan keeps you blind. He keeps you distracted. He makes it so that you do not see Christ. And instead, you chase the things that your heart genuinely desires because your heart is broken and desires things that are damaging to you. And so you never see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ and you remain separated from him. The scripture says Satan does that for everyone. It says he did it. If you're a believer this morning, Satan did that to you before you believe the gospel. Paul says in Ephesians, this is Ephesians chapter 2, that while you and I were spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, we followed the course of this world. You could not tell the difference between me and someone that doesn't believe Jesus because we were all caught up in the same foolish course of this world following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. The spirit that is now currently at work in the sons of disobedience. And Paul says, among whom we all once lived. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The Bible says that's all of us. All of us apart from Christ, are deceived. We are following our own desires, being led astray by demonic forces. Not only does Satan work among non-believers, Satan works within the church. He works to divide the church. If Satan cannot lead you to hell, then he wants to make sure that you are ineffective for heaven. Paul, the apostle, is concerned later in the book of Ephesians that I just quoted, about the church giving the devil a foothold within the church, specifically through anger. Paul says that we are to forgive one another. He says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Why? Because when you remain in anger and you don't forgive your brothers and sisters in the church, you are giving the devil an opportunity to divide the church. Paul is concerned about giving the devil those opportunities within the church among saved people. In fact, Paul recognized that Satan was scheming to hinder the advance of the gospel in his own ministry. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, he says, We are not ignorant of his schemes. He makes it clear he knows 
The things that happen as he's trying to spread the gospel, whether it's someone inciting a riot and getting him thrown into prison, whether it's opposition from the religious leaders in whatever town he happens to be in, he recognizes that there are demonic forces attempting to halt the advance of the gospel. Satan hates Jesus. He does not want to see people worshiping Jesus. And so he is an enemy of the gospel. Paul says, we're not ignorant of his schemes. The problem is many of us walk around in ignorance of his schemes because we don't think about it. Some of what I've said to you might seem totally unreal this morning. But I would say to you today that Satan is at work here this morning. Jesus says he steals the word of God. In the parable of the sower, he says the sower sows the word of God. And when he says that that seed falls on the hard soil and the birds come and they eat it up, the the disciples said, what on earth does that mean? And Jesus tells them, he says, the the sower sows the word of God. When the birds come and eat it up, that's Satan stealing away the word of God. He wants you to forget what the Bible says. How does he steal it? Well, you know, he may may distract you so that you forget it. He, He may cause you to think of something else, and then because of your affections for something other than the word of God, you just completely forget what it says. Satan blinds you to what is really true. He will distract you with some unimportant tangent. He'll try to discredit the truth of the Bible by making it seem ridiculous. Satan loves the idea of horns and a tail and a red jumpsuit. Because if you believe that he's ridiculous, you will never take seriously the war that you're in. This is absolutely real and absolutely true. And some of you are waging an internal war right now with whether or not this is true and this is real. The Bible describes it as true. Jesus goes to war with Satan. Satan will encourage you to find something even within the scripture, some minor detail that you can focus on that will distract you from Christ. He loves theological arguments when they hinder true worship and the advance of the gospel. He loves to distract you from the word of God. He will, if you open your Bible in the morning, remind you of something that you saw on Facebook. He'll make you think of all kinds of, he'll, he'll make you think, oh, I need, to, I need to schedule a dentist appointment. When you sit down to pray, he will remind you that you're out of eggs in the refrigerator. And then you'll start making a grocery list. Before you know it, 15 minutes has gone by and you need to get up and get on with your day and you no longer have time for the word of God. These are the real things. See, Satan doesn't, doesn't wage a frontal assault on you. He wants to distract you and keep you from believing in Christ and keep you from praying. And he does that both to believers and to non-believers. Satan is also your accuser. The Bible says that he accuses Christians constantly, both with real sins and with things that you have not done. If he can give you a guilt complex, you will not witness effectively for Christ. And if he reminds you of things you really have done, he can make you forget that the blood of Jesus offers you complete forgiveness through that. Some of you are completely blind to the power of Satan in your lives. You live as if we can enjoy peacetime luxury when the Bible clearly tells us that we are at war. If you do trust that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, if you are saved, 
Satan wants to see you rendered useless for the kingdom of God. And some of you may be useless because of the things you are distracted with and the things you are chasing. He is completely content, Satan is, to let you live an ineffective life, never spreading the gospel, never serving the Lord, so that when you stand before Jesus, all of your life will be burned up in a moment at the judgment seat of Christ. The Bible makes it very clear to every believer that we are at war and we are urged to be ready for that war. That's why Paul describes, I mentioned Ephesians twice, where he, he describes the reality of Satan, both in non-believers and in the life of the church. We need the armor of God. And I'll say a little bit more, but the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, we need to be equipped and ready daily for that war. That is all the bad news. So let me give you the good news. The good news is Jesus has won that war. The the war is actually won. We are in a strange place where we're waiting for our king to come back and rule. So in that in-between where Jesus has won the war and we're waiting for him to return, we are to look to Christ, our victor, And we are to follow him and obey him. But most of all, we are to rest in him completely. So what I want to do this morning, we're going to go to Luke in just a second here. I I, I want to make perfectly clear, Satan is real in your life. Jesus has totally defeated him. And you need to look to your Savior daily, moment by moment. Satan is real. Jesus has defeated him. You need to look to your Savior. And I want to describe how Jesus has defeated Satan this morning. So we're in the Gospel of Luke. We're in the fourth chapter. We have already looked at how Jesus is the Son of God. At his baptism, where Jesus identifies with sinners and shows that he is offering humanity a fresh start. God the Father says very clearly, he declares, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God the Father is pleased that his Son is offering salvation to sinners, that people are repenting and seeking the presence of God. And in Jesus' baptism, he is shown to be the eternal Son who is our Savior. We talked last, no, two weeks ago rather, about how Jesus is the greater Adam. We looked at that genealogy that ends with Adam right before the temptation of Christ. And we're reminded how Adam fails. Adam is the first created man. When he is tempted by the devil, he gives in to temptation and all of humanity is lost. The Bible says by one man sent entered the world, Adam is that one man. It is all his fault. But the scripture says... Just as through one man sin into the world and death through sin, through the righteousness of Christ, many are saved. You can be forgiven and made right with God through the person of Jesus Christ. So in the last verse of chapter 3, we're reminded of Adam, who was the first man, and then Chapter 4, verse 1 opens up and says this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. It's not an accident that that temptation comes right after Adam, 
the first created man is mentioned in the text. Luke wants you to understand that Jesus is the new Adam. And just like Satan tempted the first Adam, Satan is going to tempt Jesus. Because if he can disqualify Jesus from being our Savior, then all of humanity is lost. And we remain under the judgment of God. We remain children of wrath, like the book of Ephesians said. But Jesus is the greater Adam. Adam was tempted by Satan and failed. Now Luke is showing us that Jesus was also tempted by Satan and he did not fail. The good news that I preach to you this morning is that Jesus has already defeated our enemy Satan. Jesus has already won the decisive victory. But the reality is, although the decisive battle has been won, the war is not over yet. Satan still prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Peter wrote those words after Christ was risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. If it was true when Peter wrote them, it is true today that we are still in this battle. So what do you and I do on a daily basis, moment by moment, as we wage this war? We look to Christ Jesus our champion. We're not going to look to the text this morning and primarily get some tips to battle temptation as if we were strong enough in ourselves to do that. We're going to look to Jesus who won the victory for us. And Jesus defeated Satan in two critical ways. We're going to see one perfectly clearly in this text this morning. Number one, he defeated Satan by resisting temptation. He never sinned. You heard from the scripture that I read in Hebrews That he was tempted in the same way that you and I are, yet without sin. He never sinned. And so he was able to offer himself as the perfect sinless sacrifice. If he sinned, he could not have been a sacrifice for our sins. So when we see Jesus resist the temptation of the devil this morning, we are seeing why he is qualified to be our savior, why we can have hope in him. He is fully human which is why he can be our representative, which is why he can die in our place. He is tempted in all points, just like you are, just like I am, yet without sin. So that's the first way. Jesus defeated Satan by resisting temptation. He never sinned. Then he defeated Satan by dying in our place and rising from the dead. The book of Hebrews says, you and I, we we all, apart from Christ are under the power of the devil because of the fear of death. What did Jesus do? He came along and he died. And he rendered death powerless when he came back to life. So you and I are set free from the power of the devil because we no longer need to be afraid of death. Lots of Christians die all the time. They died in Colosseums. They still die in Egypt today getting beheaded by by Muslim terrorists. Lots of Christians die. You know what? It's not a big deal. Jesus died. He came back from the dead. And so you and I can have the power of hope in Christ because Jesus has overcome death for us. He died for our sins and he rose from the dead. That's the second way that Jesus defeated Satan. But this morning we're going to see how Jesus resists three specific temptations. And I will say a little bit, the scripture does teach, Peter says, he is our example So we can learn from him, but primarily what I want to do this morning is hold Jesus up high so that as you and I wage war on a daily basis, we don't just look for a couple of quick tips about how to do a little better, but instead we rest in what Jesus has done for us and we can find hope and victory 
not in improving our broken selves apart from Christ, but by looking to Christ so that we find strength to obey, so that we find hope for the future, so that we recognize the future with Jesus is better than any momentary sin that Satan tempts us with. So this morning, to make that kind of clear, let's, let's go ahead and look at each of these three temptations. And, and first of all, let's look at verses 1 through 4 again and see the first temptation and how Jesus resists it. Satan tempts Jesus to put second things first in his life. He's tempted to put second things first. So read with me again, chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. I think sometimes when when we look at these three temptations, and all of them, if I'm being honest, are odd. It's not an obvious temptation that Satan lays out before Christ. When we read each of these, it seems strange. This one in particular, like, why, why was it a big deal for Jesus to eat food? He's totally human. He needs food to survive. Why is it that when Jesus is tempted by the devil to turn a stone into bread, that that is somehow a make-or-break moment in the history of salvation, that if he gives in and does this, he's disqualified. He can't be our Savior anymore. Well, so many things in the scripture become a little bit clearer when you look through the Old Testament. And and each of these temptations have echoes of the Old Testament in them. You remember I said that Jesus is the new and better Adam? Well, if you look through, if you remember in Exodus, God says that Israel is his firstborn son. He says that in the conflict with Pharaoh. And if you look at how Israel behaves as God has delivered that nation, you can recognize the same temptations that are put before them. And you can recognize that where Israel, the nation, received promises of God and they failed because they didn't obey, Jesus is resting in his sonship and he obeys every single time. So, so this one in particular, Jesus in the wilderness, Luke tells us he's hungry. He's been in the desert 40 days. I think sometimes we can't even comprehend that because we don't value being alone with God the way Jesus did. Jesus does this again and again throughout Luke. We're going to see it several times that he goes off by himself to pray, to be alone. He does it before he chooses the disciples. He does it before he goes to the cross. He experiences victory over Satan when he is in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he does that as a man, I believe, showing us how we need to depend also on the Father, which we can do through Christ. But in this particular context, we should be thinking of what Exodus tells us, how they, after they're delivered from Egypt, go out into the desert. They're also in a desert, like Jesus is in a desert. And they also, they they become hungry and they grumble. God has already saved them. And they say that God led them out into the desert to die. That he's going to abandon them. And so it would have been better if they just stayed in Egypt. And what God does in his mercy is he rains manna down on them from heaven and provides bread for them. 
But the scripture says God is not pleased with them in that context, that they fail that test. They don't trust the promises that God has clearly given them, and they don't remember what God has already done and what God has already shown them. They grumble. And think for a second what grumbling children do for parents. You've ever been to a restaurant and seen really whiny kids? You don't look at their parents and say, man, they should write a book. You look at them and say, what's wrong with you? Take control your offspring, you know, or just leave the restaurant is actually what I feel like some of those looks are saying. Not that I've ever experienced looks like that. (laughs) When children misbehave, it reflects badly on their parents. That's just an unfortunate reality. If you are a child of God and you misbehave, it reflects badly on your father. And what's happening here is Jesus has devoted time to be with the Father. And you would think after 40 days, like, good grief, isn't that enough? But Satan is trying to end this early. He's coming to Christ and saying, you've spent enough time in prayer. You're good. Enjoy the blessing of being God's son and feed your belly. And Jesus says to him, man shall not live By bread alone. Man shall not live by bread alone. He is recognizing it is more important to spend time with God than it is to eat breakfast. It is more important to spend time with God than it is to meet your earthly physical needs. Your greatest need in life is not food, shelter, and clothing. Your greatest need in life is to be right with God. And Jesus is showing that priority. He puts first things first. You don't live by bread alone. You live by the word of God. You live by the provision of the Father. And so he is being the faithful son. He is making his father look good. He puts God first. You and I, we worship God because he gives us life. That's one of the reasons we ought to worship him. But very often that worship gets interrupted when we feel like God isn't meeting our needs. Jesus is showing us that even when your needs are not being met, you need to trust the Father. Jesus trusts his Father even when he's hungry and doesn't have food. Secondly, Jesus is tempted to do the right thing in the wrong way. He's tempted to do the right thing in the wrong way. Look at verses 5 through 8 with me. Scripture says, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me. And I'll remind you, Scripture calls Satan the god of this world. So he's not, I don't think, making this up. He does have some say over our fallen world right now. He offers that that influence, that glory to Christ. And he says, And I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. 
Satan offers Jesus instant dominion if he just breaks just the first commandment and worships him instead of the Father. This, I think, this is obvious sin, right? You just have to know the first of the first ten commandments to recognize this is wrong. But it also seems somewhat outlandish. Like, how would the Son of God worship Satan? Why? That doesn't even make sense. But again, if you look at the Old Testament, you find Israel did exactly this. Jesus is resisting the same sort of temptation. So how did they do this? God tells them again and again and again, do not make alliances with foreign kingdoms. You know what an alliance with with an ungodly kingdom is? It's submission to a foreign god. All over the ancient Near East... Kings taught and believed either A, they were deity, or B, they ruled on the authority of their local tribal deity. So when you made a treaty with a foreign nation, you were saying, our God is not really strong enough to make peace with you, so we're going to pay tribute to you so that you don't attack us, you don't take our things. Stay away and we'll just keep you wealthy. You are saying that your God is is, is superior to our God, that our God is not really strong enough to protect us, And so you see, even Joshua, he accidentally makes a treaty with people before the people are even in the land. But out of that, Israel never recovers. They constantly have problems with people both inside and outside the land. And kings are constantly tempted. Solomon does this almost immediately. He marries Pharaoh's daughter. Why? Because if you have that kind of foreign alliance, you're less likely to go to war. And so all throughout the Old Testament, the kings of Israel worship foreign gods through treaties. What Jesus does is he says, I want nothing to do with that. I'm not worshiping you, Satan. God is going to give me all of this anyway in his perfect time. I'm not going to shortcut the process. And that was actually what God promised to do for Israel too. He said, I'm going to give you all of this stuff. You just need to wait and you need to trust me. And I'm going to lead you in my time and my way. Israel failed. They don't trust God. They make the alliances. They worship foreign gods. Jesus refuses to worship foreign gods. He refuses to worship Satan and trusts that the Father will, in his perfect time, in his perfect way, exalt him, which is exactly what Philippians says. It says, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day is still in the future, but it will come. So Jesus was tempted by the devil to do the right thing in the wrong way. Finally, Jesus is tempted to control or to manipulate the Father. Look at me at verses 9 through 13. It says, and on there, excuse me, it says, and he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The passage that Jesus quotes here, where says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is, is again from Deuteronomy. All of these are from Deuteronomy, which should help us understand that Jesus is succeeding where Israel failed because Deuteronomy is showing time and again where Israel fails to rely on God, where they do not trust his promises and they do not obey. Jesus obeys perfectly. In this instance, Israel's grumbling because God did not provide them with water. 
they missed the fact that he had already saved them and promised to provide for them. Scripture says that they put God to the test by grumbling and acting as if he would not take care of them and meet their needs. And, And in this way, Satan is encouraging Christ to take advantage of his position as God's child. He's abusing his position as God's child. He's manipulating that relationship. He's like the whiny kid that demands something from his parents, saying, don't you love me? That does not make the father look good. And Jesus says, you know what? I am God's son, and he's secure in that. He doesn't worry about it. He doesn't have to prove it. And so he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to a test. He makes the Father look good by reflecting who the Father is and what the Father does, by trusting that the Father is going to provide for him. He is the Father's obedient Son. And that's why he is qualified to be our Savior. You and I are going to wrestle with this on a regular basis. And in fact, each of these, I I, I think... We have to recognize that we have victory over these types of temptation as we look to Christ who won the victory for us. God is not our personal genie. You can't pull promises out of context and apply them to yourself and say, I'm a child of God, I'm going to claim that. That's not what the scripture is for. You look to Christ first and seek to obey him. And it's in Christ that we receive the promise of the Holy Spirit and the power that we need. And you see this in Jesus, verse 14 and 15. It says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. When Jesus has victory, you and I have victory. When we try to abuse our position as God's children, that's never going to work. We lose sight of Christ. And so I want to apply these in a couple of different ways. First, each of these temptations we face, each of them is answered by looking to Christ Jesus, the author and perfecter of of our faith. And what do I mean by looking to Christ? We have to be clear on what that means. I mean a few things. Number one means we believe what the Bible says about Jesus. We believe that he died for our sins and that he rose from the dead. Sin will blind you to that truth, even if you can repeat it like a parrot. The sin of pride will make you think that you don't need the forgiveness through Jesus' blood or that you're, you're good after you prayed a prayer a long time ago and that you don't really need to do anything to follow him in obedience. On the flip side of that, the sin of unbelief will make you think that you're so bad that even Jesus can't save you. There are two types of errors that, that sin will blind you to and, and both of them will keep you from looking at Jesus Christ. So when I say we need to look to Christ, we need to remember that his death and resurrection is relevant for each of us. That's why we talked about communion this morning. Communion is God's gift to you to help you remember what Jesus did for you so that you can rest in his victory. Second, the other thing, as we think about what it means to look to Jesus, Hebrews tells us that we are to lay aside sin and run with endurance. The expectation is we will suffer right now But we have victory as we look to Jesus, not just by following his example. says we set aside every weight and run with endurance this race by looking at what Jesus did when he suffered and was glorified. We look to the future reward when we look at what God did in Christ Jesus. We have hope 
and victory over Satan when we remember that our future is better than any present sin that we could enjoy right now. So let me ask you, so you think about the three temptations specifically our text talked about. Are you sometimes tempted to put your own needs above devotion to God? Do you put yourself first and trust God second? Do you care about your home? Do you care about your emotional needs? Do you care about the things that matter to you and only approach God to meet your needs? That's not what God is for. He's not your personal genie. Paul said, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. That's true in Christ Jesus. You look to Jesus first and recognize God does not exist to make you happy. You exist to glorify God. Sometimes that means you're going to suffer right now. Sometimes that means you're going to glorify God by trusting in Jesus through your suffering. So if you feel like God is not meeting your needs, cry out to him. He is your loving heavenly father, but recognize there is a bigger picture here. You are at war and you as a child of God will either make the father look bad by being a whining little brat or you can make the father look good by trusting him even in the midst of your need. Recognize the picture is much bigger than the need that's pressing on you right now. Are you tempted, thinking of a second temptation, to appeal to worldly powers and influence rather than Christ? This is something that I think, it doesn't matter if you're Democrat or Republican, I think most Christians did this during the last election. Do you put your trust in ungodly politicians who will defend your rights? Do you align yourself with people that do not glorify God because you trust in their power rather than in the Heavenly Father? Think for a second about how many Christians God has allowed to have their rights stripped away. Christians in China don't have freedom of religion. And you know what? They glorify God on a regular basis by worshiping Jesus anyway. We don't depend on secular power and authority so that we can worship God. We worship God anyway, and we trust that our loving Heavenly Father will meet our needs in His own will, in His own way. Think for a second. I mean, there's a chance that someday, even in America, Christians will be thrown in jail for being faithful. That day probably will come. If Jesus wants you to go to jail, you need to be okay with that. And you know, he has sent a lot of people to jail in the past. Paul went to jail all the time. You know what a good Christian does in jail? A good Christian converts the jailer. That's what we do when we suffer. We should not be trying to bolster our freedoms through ungodly political alliance. And I'm not talking just to Republicans or to Democrats. I'm saying our faith has to be in Jesus, not in the false hope of some earthly politician. Maintain your faith in God. And finally, are you tempted to manipulate God by demanding things while you don't obey his clear commands? Are you, are you manipulating God as, as a bad child? Are you saying, God, if you do this for me, then I'll do this for you? That's not how this works. We're supposed to go to God and trust that he will meet our needs, not give him a list of demands so that we can eventually obey him. As we look at each of those temptations, I, I want to close with just a couple of things for what we ought to do. Number one, when you are tempted 
and you're in that moment where you want to do the wrong thing, look to Jesus Christ and recognize that he has obeyed. And because of his obedience, you are set free from the power of sin and death. You play the long game. You recognize that what's promised to you by God is greater than anything that you are tempted by right now. You need the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit. Both of those point to Christ Jesus. The shield of faith is faith that Jesus died for you and rose from the dead. And the sword of the Spirit is the word of God that you see Jesus wielding again and again. Do you have verses that you use when you are tempted? If you don't, you need them. Some of you are wandering around unarmed and you don't care. Let me say to you bluntly, do not be a fool. You are in war and you need to be ready. Read your Bible and find verses that help you cling to Christ. That's all preparation. Second, how do you be ready on a daily basis knowing that temptation is coming? Well, first, follow the example of Christ and do spend time with the Father in prayer. You see Jesus go alone to pray and to be with God multiple times throughout Luke's gospel. You see him fasting. You see Jesus pray for Peter when Satan wants to destroy him. And if you're going to go to war with Satan, you must pray. In fact, I just mentioned that the armor of God, you know, the the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith. At the end of all that list, Paul says, pray at all times in the spirit. Pray. You will not be ready for temptation unless you know you're in a war and you pray. And finally, what do you do when you've failed? What do you do when it's too late? You know, Satan as your accuser wants you to live with a burden of guilt so that you'll never serve God again. Well, again, you look to Christ. You know that Jesus won your victory. You confess your sin and you rest in the knowledge that Satan is defeated not by your perfect obedience, but Satan is defeated by the perfect obedience of Christ. Your life comes through Christ, not through your own willpower. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we ask for your forgiveness for being lazy, for losing focus, for trusting in things and for making you look bad by not trusting you. Lord, you have kindly and generously given us your own son as our savior. And I ask that you would help us to look to him. I I pray that we would remember this scripture, that we would remember the victory of Christ. Pray that Satan would not be able to steal it away from us, but that we would look in faith. And I ask that in your power, we would have victory and look to Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let me dismiss you with the words of Jude. Jude says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Go in peace.